You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Well, we are now live on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Charles Cook. On the Immigration Hour, we have a special guest today, David Beer from the Cato Institute. David is an immigration policy analyst. He just joined uh, Cato, I think, earlier this year, David? That's right, over the summer. That's awesome. We're excited to have him here, and we've loved having Alex on the show before. But David has put put out a number of really good articles and studies, uh, really, since in the short time that you've been there. And I just I wanted to invite you on the show because I thought some of it, so much of it, was just powerful. You've actually even been in Time Magazine. I was just That's saw, correct, yeah. uh, talking about crime. So what I'd like to do is kind of talk about all these these issues that keep coming up because Cato has kind of stepped into a void, hasn't it? Uh, where there really isn't anybody advocating out there for facts on immigration. We get a lot of the the made up facts that come out of, in my opinion, Numbers USA and uh, and and uh, and, and uh, CIS and and Fair, where they take and they deeply analyze census numbers to throw out just literally make believe stuff. Uh, and I think Cato spends a lot of time looking at the actual numbers here and then lets you draw your own conclusions. I mean, here's the facts. Let's look at the facts here. Um, tell me why you went to Cato in the first place. Well, I'm a lifelong libertarian, and so uh, Cato Institute has long represented the the sole voice for those of us who feel like government uh, is really the cause of many of these problems. Uh, whether it's you know the the illegal immigration issue or or uh, many of the other ones that uh, are so commonly discussed as issues that we need government to fix, uh, it's really our belief at Cato that. Uh, many of these problems are actually government-created, and uh, we need to start looking for uh, more freedom as the answer and allow people to start fixing some of these, these problems on their own and uh, free from government interference. And uh, that's certainly what we believe uh, in the area of immigration. And, uh, you know, more liberty and uh, more freedom, uh, I think, would do the world a lot of good. Yeah, liberty and freedom have never really hurt anybody, have they? Unless no, they do it to so, themselves, unless they do it to not, themselves. Not so far. Uh, not so far. I, the last time I uh, checked, uh, most of the the big atrocities were not from having uh, too much uh, vigor in defense of individual rights. And, what, and immigration kind of brings a weird uh, combination of bedfellows together, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And also combines a lot of interesting bedfellows against it. Immigration has become... That's a terrible word. It hasn't become. Immigration has always been a polarizing issue in the U.S., hasn't it? Yeah, and and as you mentioned, not in a way that's uh, really along party lines or along the normal uh, coalitions, left, right, uh, however you would describe it. Uh, There's really a, a strange subset of groups who are very opposed to immigration. I mean, Bernie Sanders... Uh, talking about more open immigration as a Koch brothers right wing conspiracy, uh, you know, and he's you know the main challenger on the left to Hillary Clinton, and so you know you have it on both sides. People uh, who think that uh, immigration is somehow a uh, you know a bad thing or something that's going to make us poor in the United States. Uh, you know, coming from both directions. You know, I, I frequently have said on, on this show that, you know, it, this is nothing new. This is not a, you know, a 21st or 20, late 20th century invention on immigration. Benjamin Franklin was terrified of the immigrants coming to America so much so that he wanted to make sure that English was the official language in the Constitution because he was terrified the Germans were going to take over mm-hmm. everything. 
You know, so this yeah. is not, there's nothing new about this. It's just yeah. the nature of the immigrant has changed. But I love what you said early on that government is the cause of illegal immigration. Um, now we we know a lot of the the big part of the driver of illegal immigration is is economic and family, uh, and that something like the amnesty that we had in 1986 actually created additional illegal immigration because not because the program itself was a failure because in many ways it was not but because it was not forward looking it was only backward looking yeah i mean that's certainly correct uh, the idea in 1986 was that we uh would create a, a program for the people who are here and then we were going to lock down the borders and that was going to be the cure for illegal immigration and so the government was going to solve the problem uh, in the future. They were going to be the ones putting, you know, men on the border. We're going to put fences up. We're going to stop uh, this uh, problem in the future. And it ultimately backfired. And, you know, what the history shows and what the numbers show is that instead of ending the flow of illegal immigration, you had a situation in which people who before 1986 would go across the border, mm-hmm. they'd work in Texas and California, and, and, go, back. Uh, and go back. What what ended up happening, after we put up fences and we made it very expensive to get across the border, people got across once, they snuck across, and rather than just going to Texas, they went all over, and they never left. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we ended up having this huge explosion of uh, the number of people in the United States who are here illegally, and and uh, that's the solution we need in the future. The, the solution that we need in the future is more legal options for people to come and work legally, and then you would actually end up with a situation in which fewer people ultimately stay permanently in the United States if they uh, had the option to go home and come back, uh, which was really the the. Uh, situation before 1986. You know, what was interesting about that is in 86, we, not, we, we, we legalized, we literally had an amnesty. That, you know, when people talk about amnesty, pay $65, here's your green card. That, that literally was an amnesty. But yeah. one, of the, one of the two big mistakes with that is that we amnestize, we give amnesty to just men, basically, because you had to prove that you were here or you were here working in the field. So it was mm-hmm. literally empty to men, but all of these men, almost all of them had families. So yeah. then we say, oh, they just go bring them through the regular process. Well, now you have, yeah. and still today, have 20 to 50-year-long waits for yep. family members from Mexico. So do you think they're yep. going to stay apart? No. When back then, the border wasn't sealed. There was no money yep. put into amnesty. So now they brought up their families. And so immediately, one, they came in with their families. So that's a big chunk of the undocumented yep. immigration, which is why today you see so many mixed-status families where dad yep. or grandpa has a green card, but mom yep. or grandma never got one or are still waiting in the line. Um, yeah. And two, the other big problem was we didn't account for people who said would say, yeah, you know, thanks for getting my green card for, for picking oranges for the last 20 years in the heat of Arizona. Yeah, I'm going to go get a better job now. And yeah. we didn't account for yeah. future flow. My gosh, yeah. somebody's going to pick the oranges. Um, and I was just thinking, I, th- I think, I'm not sure you guys have not studied on this yet, but I know, as you know, that there is a, a new report that just came out. I think it was from Pew that there's something like 38 million foreign-born people who now live in the United States. Maybe it's even 40 million, yeah. which is around 12. It's, it's the highest. I think our friends at CIA said it's the most number yeah. ever, which is true, of course. But yeah. it's not the biggest percentage ever. 
Yeah. The biggest percentage ever was, of course, during the era, the era of the Great Immigration in, in, in the early part of the, of the 20th century. Uh, right. But think about what would America be like with 40 million less people? Yeah, I mean, if you if you try to turn back the clock on this and you say, you know, I wish we had kept the immigration system that we had in place before 1965, mm -hmm. uh, you're really talking about uh, a time in which, you know, we had 5% of the population were foreign-born, and it was a declining immigrant population. If we had continued that policy, not only would we have this, 40 million fewer people in the United States, we'd have, it would be much larger than that because of all of their children mm -hmm. and ultimately grandchildren who were born here. Our population would be much smaller and much older, and uh, really it's the immigrants who are preventing, uh, you know, the demographic decline of the United States that we've seen carried out in Europe as uh, the population aged and uh, the native-born population had, a, had far fewer um, children. Ultimately, they, that resulted in fewer uh, workers for every retiree, and that's really the ratio that you need to pay attention to when you're talking about fiscal budgets or the economy. You need that working-age population if you're going to have economic growth. So we would look a lot like Russia, is what you're telling me, yeah, which absolutely. did not have that immigration. And thus yeah, and so, and so when you have these anti-immigrant uh, groups talking about, look at how many, the, the, the percentage of immigrants in the United States is, you know, going up and up and up. Well, the reason why the share of immigrants is so much higher today is because we're not having kids. Right. And so if we had more kids like we did back in the 60s, then that share would remain pretty much static uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, but instead, it's going up, and that's a good thing because they're replacing, uh, you know, these children that we would have had in prior generations. You know, I just realized, I just found this out, that the millennial generation is actually larger than the baby boomer generation, as yep. far as numbers were concerned. Uh, and that was a concern 20 years ago. How big, how many more do we have to have in the United States to pay for the retirement and the benefits and the assistance that we, and not you, David, but me, certainly me and David here in the studio, Moxley, need sure. as we as we get older? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's really been an amazing factor in preventing uh, the bankruptcy of Social Security, and that's you know, something that's been borne out in report after report. Most recently, the National Academy of Sciences did a report showing the fiscal boom that immigration has created for the federal budgets. And, uh, you know, that's something that just cannot be ignored when you're talking about the question of what to do about immigration. You have to consider the fact that we need workers. And if we're not going to have children, which apparently, you know, it's a free country, we don't have to have them, and uh, a lot of people are choosing not to, if we're not going to have children, we need immigrants to come in and, and do these jobs and expand the economy and uh, grow the workforce. Now, that report out of the National Academy of Sciences, that was actually a fascinating report. I'm, I'm only like two-thirds of the way through that thing at this point. Yeah. But one of the things that's really interesting about that is you, you look at the you – know, they acknowledge the fact there are some people – that have been hurt by, by, by immigration at the levels we have it. And nobody can, nobody can say we, we're not. But who are those people, and why are they hurt, is really the bigger question. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, so what the Academy's found is really consistent uh, with much of the other literature on the subject. And it's really people who don't graduate high school, uh, who really don't have uh, much education, um, who, you know, typically there's reasons why you don't graduate high school that go beyond, you know, you don't like education. You have some other problems that prevent you from uh, getting education. Those that group of individuals um, are uh, adversely impacted by having low-skill immigrants come in and uh, compete with them, but not very much. It's really what the report found mm-hmm. is that you're talking two to four percent decline as a result of a huge increase in the immigrant population. So they have a very modest decline. Is the first point. The second point is uh, a point that I uh, brought out in a, a, a variety of different uh, posts over the past couple of weeks that you can check out on our website, and that is that as the, at the same time that you had this huge increase in low-skill immigrants who are taking low-skill jobs, the native-born population has started to do two things. They've started to get educated, and they've started to get higher-skilled jobs. And so that's really the the response from the native-born population in the United States is we're going to get educated, the immigrants are going to do these lower-skilled jobs, and so ultimately this population who's been adversely impacted uh, to a very mild degree has shrunk in real terms. There's actually much fewer 60% fewer from 1995 to 2015. And, and that's because more people are, we have fewer dropouts from high school during that exactly. time Exactly. People so are responding is, to immigration uh-huh. by getting skills and by getting education, and they're getting higher paying jobs that are created when you have these low-skill immigrants who come in to do these lower-skill jobs. They actually create high-skill jobs and increase wages uh, for higher-skill workers. And that's a really good thing. I mean, that's uh, that's something that uh, we shouldn't want to uh, to end. We want people to get skills. We want people to get educated. And uh, there are things that we can do for that uh, very shrinking, small uh, portion of the population who are still without work or are struggling because they haven't graduated high school. We really need to figure out what to do about them. But uh, cutting off immigration and hoarding 99% of the population really is not uh, the answer. Um, well, let's take a break on that. No, we'll be back in just a minute on America's Web Radio. we talk more to David Beer of the Cato Institute. Soy Charles Cook, el jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. 
You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verifying your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. we got David Beer with us today from the Cato Institute. David, David I did actually did not read a lot of your bio to the to public out there. Hope, seemingly they might know who you are, but uh, David joined Cato this early summer. But before that, for a couple of years, you worked with uh, one of my friends, Raul Labrador, a Tea Party congressman, um, uh, as a senior policy advisor. Uh, I love Raul. A good guy. A fellow co-religionist of mine. Um, and, um, yes, and, uh, and a former immigration lawyer. Uh, immigration attorney, that's yes, right. Yes, a former yeah. immigration lawyer. I, yeah. I, I, I talked to Rola, uh, I must get probably two years ago when I was up in D.C. for, quote, lobby day on immigration about these issues. Uh, you know, Congre- a lot of congressmen get this, don't they? They're not stupid yeah. on some, well, some, I'm not going to know of them. Some yeah. of them get this, and they get it very clearly. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. The, I would say the big divide in Congress is between those who think immigration just just legal immigration let's let's not get into all right. the issues with illegal immigration and and what to do with people who are here illegally there's a big divide in congress between those who think that future immigrants illegally to the united states are going to be a bad thing and those who think they're going to be a good thing and that's on the democratic side and that's on and the republican, republican side, side. Yeah, and it doesn't get much coverage you don't you don't hear about it on the Democratic side, uh, but uh, it's just as much a reality on the Democratic side that many uh, Democrats in in the House of Representatives and and in the Senate uh, think that uh, immigration, more people coming into the United States, is a bad thing. Maybe we should legalize the people who are already here, but letting people come in the future is going to be a bad thing. Going to make us poorer. And uh, so that's the dynamic that we yeah, really and, face. And I've tried to get that out to my friends in, in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that, look, you're, these, this is not a party issue. There are people that are Democrats that talk a game on immigration, but they're really talking about solving the, the temporary and the past problem of undocumented yep. immigration yep. and not addressing what will be, I think, the salvation of America going forward. Uh, which is uh, a, a positive, affirmative, good legal immigration policy, something we do not currently enjoy. Um, exactly. Let's talk about legal immigration a second. Now, this is, I mean, you're a young man, David. Uh, I was a, a lawyer when Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1990. And the work that went into Im- what we now call IMACT 90 uh, to, mm-hmm. to update and modernize our legal immigration system. We are now, you know, 26 years later, and that immigration system we created 26 years ago is creaky and old and dysfunctional. Uh, yeah. Is there any hope, in your opinion, having been on the Hill recently, that any Congress will address this in, a, in an affirmative way that will actually help America, regardless of who's president? You know, uh, it's hard to be optimistic right now in the middle of an election, but <laughs> I can tell you... Uh, having been there after, uh, uh, you know, in 2013 following a presidential election, 
politics does change very rapidly. And uh, I think when, you know, people get back, you know, after the election, they digest it and they look at, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? Um, I think immigration is definitely going to be on that list of things that uh, Congress really needs to address, that this is not something that we can just continue to allow uh, to fester for for years to come and, and allow the president to do whatever president to do whatever he wants um, on this issue. And so I think Congress will want to assert its authority here. And, um, yeah, I'm hopeful. I, I think that there are uh, a variety of things on which, you know, a large majority of Congress does agree on, uh, when it, whether it comes to legal immigration or when it comes to uh, finding a way for people who are here illegally to uh, receive legal status. Um, not necessarily citizenship. I don't know if we're all the way there um, within the Republican conference for, for full-on citizenship, but I think there is support uh, among majority in Congress for allowing people to get a work permit to live in the United States legally with their families um, without fear of deportation. And, you know, if they get citizenship another way through some other process, whether through marriage or through employer sponsorship, that's still available to them. Um, but, uh, you know, a special new pathway to citizenship, I don't think we're quite there yet um, within the Republican well, conference. And, and, and I'm, I'm I want to interrupt you there because I think this is a really important point. People keep talking about a pathway to citizenship. Why? It should be a pathway to legality. Legal, being legal should be the norm. I have yep. yet, in my 27 years of practice, had somebody walk in my office who was undocumented say, gosh, I'd love to be a citizen. Yeah. Literally, yeah. every single one has said, I'd like a work card so I can get a driver's license. That's it. Yeah, no. That's yeah, it. I, now, I don't believe there yeah. should. I don't, I don't believe there should be tiers of citizenship. I don't believe that people be disallowed from being citizens. But I think we do know statistically, and I've been a while since I looked at something like this. But only about sixty percent of the people who become permanent residents actually become citizens. Generally yeah. speaking, I think, I think that's a historical number. You go back and look at the numbers. Uh, but it's not going to change demographically the voting population of the United States. And I, I, and I saw a study, this has got to be, oh my gosh, like, it was after Reagan's amnesty, uh, that said something to the effect that depend, you, you will be more affiliative to the political party in power when you are naturalized. So they were looking at people who were naturalized, who they, who they ended up voting for, uh, what party they ended up joining, and it tended to more affiliate with whoever was in authority when you were naturalized. Kind of an interesting idea. I haven't seen a recent study on that, but I'd, I'd love to see something on that. There's some, put that yeah. on your project list, David. Look, yeah. look at crazy idea from Cook about uh, affiliation yeah. of parties. But uh, the idea that we need to worry about, about um, becoming citizen people is crazy. Um, yeah. And the other part of it is, and I think this is the, the vital part about the undocumented immigration population that takes up all the oxygen in the room, is that I think it's what, 60, maybe 65 percent of them have been here for 10 years. That means yeah. everyone, that now you're talking about 7 million people that would technically be eligible for relief under the law if they were put into deportation proceedings, because they would technically all apply mm -hmm. for cancellation of removal. A yeah. relief that only 4,000 of them a year can qualify for. Yeah. So, yeah, and 
and uh, you know the courts are are incredibly backlogged as it is. Oh. It would just end up being a, a machine to ultimately produce a, a bunch of people waiting in line. Well, for let, let me tell you what's going on right now. So you get a, and you probably don't know this in in the ivory tower of Washington D.C., but there are a number of lawyers around the United States that are taking the position. Uh, that they can get work permits for undocumented people who have been here for 10 years, uh, yeah. who have children born here, and thus would technically qualify for the relief of cancellation of removal if they can get them into deportation proceedings. And they're doing it by filing asylum applications, yeah. claiming that, oh, you know, yeah, I'm afraid to go back to Mexico because of whatever, the violence, which is, and, and none of them qualify for asylum because they've all been here longer than a year. By by def- definition, so now we have a nightmarish asylum system, which, yeah. where I have clients waiting a year and a half for an interview while their wife is in hiding in Afghanistan, so that somebody can get a work permit. So these people, this is happening all over the country. So literally, yeah. people are creating the solution under current law in a way that's further destroying the system. Yeah, no, I, and it really is. Uh, situation. You, you mentioned support for immigrants who, who want driver's licenses. There was a study done in 2014 that asked all Hispanics in the United States whether immigrants should, you know, whether it's a bigger priority for immigrants to become citizens or whether they should become legal residents. Mm-hmm. And it was overwhelming. It was something near 80% said it's more important that they become, uh, you know, receive legal status to stay here. Uh, without fear of deportation versus, you know, received citizenship. That's the priority uh, for people. And so, you know, it's a total distraction to start focusing on the question of citizenship. And and yet that's what the politicos go right to, and both parties. And I think that does a disservice to the argument. And then that further goes, well, then they're going to all vote for Democrats. These are the same Democrats who refused to carry out any immigration reform proposal in 2009 when they had complete control of the House and the Senate. I remind people that all the time. The Democrats could have fixed this problem, but they don't want to fix the problem because they benefit from the problem. Uh, and there is a huge group of people out there in the, in the DACA community and the undocumented community who would naturally based upon their political beliefs, their family beliefs, their religious beliefs, either be libertarian or Republican, but are yeah. forced away by the rhetoric of leader- some leadership in the party, while people like Paul Ryan are like going, God, my God, can we just fix this problem? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we did a report at Cato that took a look at the political assimilation of immigrants into the United States. And, the, you know, when you take a look at their actual beliefs, what they actually say about policy, there's statistically uh, insignificant differences between immigrants and the native-born population in the United States. When it comes to party affiliation, yes, they identify more with Democrats. So, and know, why do you think that? Is that? You think that's because of rhetoric? Oh, I think it's a hundred percent about rhetoric. And uh, you know, one of the best case studies on this. Uh, that uh, we also have a post about uh, taking a look at California and what happened with the immigrant population <laughs> there, which is obviously a very significant portion of the immigrant population yep. in the entire country. And really what happened in California is a story where the Republican Party made a conscious decision to start blaming the fiscal problems of the state on immigrants. Yep. And they started saying things like, 
we have this budget gap, and it's a result of immigrants who are coming across the border, and we need to get rid of them. And once that, once that statement uh, has been made, once that bridge has been crossed with a community, it's really hard to, to go back uh, and turn back the clock and say, you know what, actually we were wrong. Uh, you're not to blame for our budget situation, which they were not. It was a lie at the time, and it's a lie today. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's the, that's the issue. And they went from having 50% of the vote in the governor's election in 1990 mm-hmm. to having 20% of the vote <laughs> for governor in 1994. And they won that election in 1994. And, and that was said, the last, oh, no the last real Republican it, that got elected in that state, because I'm not going to count Schwarzenegger as a real Republican. Yeah, yeah, la- yeah the last real Republican ever. Yeah. So, you know, one, they, yes, they won that one election, but uh, after that, it was all blue from then on. And that's a, you know, I believe we should have competitive parties. I mean, that, that, uh, that's what I want to see. Absolutely. That's, we're both better off if we compete. Um, and, you know, one party rule has never been good for any country or any location, uh, whether the United States or internationally. We need to have competitive parties in the United States, regardless of whether you're Democrat or Republican or whatever, libertarian. We need competition. And, uh, you know, that's really why it does matter that uh, both these parties are competing for the immigrant vote. Well, let's take our next break here on the Immigration Hour. We'll be right back with David Beer from the Cato Institute on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, abogado y jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Llámenos hoy si usted tiene problemas con inmigración, si ha sido arrestado, si se casó con un ciudadano o tiene una oferta de trabajo. Nosotros le podemos ayudar. También podemos explicar con qué puedes hacer para recibir los beneficios de inmigración. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611, 404-816-8611, o visítenos por el internet al www.immigration.net. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you, David. It's great to have uh, David Beer back with us uh, from Cato, and I hope you'll tell Alex I said hello. hope he's doing well with that new baby of his. He's just a cute, cute little guy. That's right. Um, now, you actually did a report just this last week that I thought was fascinating, uh, entitled U.S. Muslims Become More Socially Liberal As Muslim Immigration Rises. What, what was that about? Where did that come from? That's a fascinating finding. Yeah, so it came out of, uh, we took a look at pretty much all of the polling data that's a 
double on Muslims in the United States. And uh, the first post that I did was take a look at them compared with their, the countries of origin that they come from and show essentially that they're abandoning their old country ways uh, at an incredible rate. Um, when you're, no matter what uh, issue you're looking at, U.S. Muslims are significantly more socially liberal, uh, tolerant, uh, whether it's religiously or socially. And uh, the second post that I, follow-up uh, post that I did was the, the amazing thing about their assimilation is that they are assimilating at this rapid pace when U.S. Muslim immigration is at its absolute peak, its highest levels ever, um, and yet they are continuing to assimilate rapidly um, uh, during this period of time. And, and one of the, you know, just to use one of the examples, one of the poll questions from Pew Research Center uh, that they've done in 2007 and in 2014, they asked uh, Muslims in the United States whether they say the Koran should be taken literally or, or, or figuratively. And uh, in 2007, uh, the percent who said we shouldn't take it literally was 33%. In 2014, seven years later, it's 43%. So a 10 wow. percentage point growth while the number of Muslim immigrants is growing by nearly 60% over that period of time. And so that's amazing. So new Muslim immigrants who are coming in are not preventing the assimilation of, of, of Muslims into our more uh, religiously liberal, uh, socially liberal uh, culture in the United States. And so I, I, I thought that was one of the more remarkable facts. The other important thing to note that I point out is that when you're talking about Muslim immigrants, Muslim immigrants aren't like uh, uh, a racial group where they have an identity and they keep it throughout their life uh, regardless of, of uh, you know, changing factors, right? They are, they are uh, a group who can abandon their identity. And so I took a look at what percentage of Muslims are actually giving up Islam because they are the most likely to be the most liberal of any of the groups, right? Mm -hmm, yep. And so 23% of those raised in the, uh, it raised with Islam as their faith in childhood later abandoned that faith um, in the United States. And so none of them, their views aren't counted toward, uh, you know, toward our, our understanding of how Muslim immigration affects the United States. And so both of those facts, you know, lead to the conclusion that actually what the United States is doing through immigration is creating the only truly liberal Muslims in the world. So there is, are, are this is, the, this is the location of the liberal Islam, is the yes. United States. Yes. So what, what, we're, so what we're asking other countries to do, we have done ourselves. It, exactly. And, and we are creating a voice. A, a more influential voice in the world for a liberal, a new t form of Islam is developing in the United States. And the more people who come and assimilate into that uh, new Islam is, are, is going to have effects that reverberate around the world uh, because they still have links to, uh, you know, their home country.
And uh, I believe that continuing Muslim immigration to the United States could be the best thing we could do to change Islam around the world. Well, that's an interesting perspective because there are many politicians who think that's the exact opposite of that, that additional Muslim immigration will actually destroy America. Exactly, and it's really not the first time that we've heard this type of rhetoric about uh, religious uh, immigrant group. Uh, in the early 20th century, it was the Catholic immigrants who were the target of this type of uh, rhetoric that they... Um, and it wasn't without substance either. Uh, if you look back at what the popes in the early 20th century were saying about re- religious freedom, democracy, and individ- individual rights, they were adamantly opposed to all three. Uh, the, you know, the, the things that they were saying, religious freedom is incompatible with the Catholic faith. And, uh, you know, so the Protestant majority in the United States, who obviously believe in the First Amendment, were very concerned about this fact. And what ended up happening was they assimilated into that, uh, that culture of religious freedom, and ultimately uh, they changed the world because the American Catholic Church became the biggest advocate for the Church adopting or evolving on the issue of religious freedom. And in the 1960s, the Catholic Church uh, adopted the position that religious freedom is not only compatible, but something that has always been part of uh, the Catholic faith. And so that's a, a huge change and an example of how uh, a religion can change as a result of coming uh, to the United States and experiencing uh, its culture. What I th- one of the one of the, the one of the points that came out of your uh, article just this week was uh, fascinating. Where you wrote this: two small surveys found that the number of Iranian Americans who identify as Muslim dropped from forty-two to thirty-one percent in four years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean that yeah. that is a stunning drop. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, a large amount of, uh, of immigrants from that part of the world who are uh, giving up the faith and, uh, you know, assimilating in a, in a completely different way, which is adopting the uh, majority religions in the United States. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part, of, uh, part of the process. So uh, why don't we hear about that in the press? Why, well. is the, why is the press not focused so much on the terrorism or the Syrian refugee issue uh, and the danger and harm that comes to America with this rather than looking at the bigger picture? Is it just a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge? I would certainly say what sells, what sells newspapers. That was my final question. Is it just what, yeah, what gets I mean, on the news? You know, you, you don't need to go far to see what, uh, you know, gets viewership. It's It's sensationalized stories about terrorism. It's it's not, uh, you know, these slow changes that happen over time um, that uh, really don't get noticed. You know, the fact that the crime rate has dropped in half from 1990 to 2010, that's not a newspaper story yeah. because that's something that's happened slowly year after year. It's not something that's, you know, uh, there's no explosion that suddenly uh, all these Muslims are becoming liberals. Uh, it's something that happens gradually. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, it's, you know, not something you, you can easily visualize, uh, but it's something that's certainly happening to a, to a great extent. And when you say liberals, you're not talking about they're becoming Democrats. You're, you're talking about social values as compared to where they came from. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, some of the things that we looked at, for example, uh, the belief that it's okay to, to marry someone outside mm-hmm. of your religion uh, or acceptable uh, to uh, not wear a head covering or, uh, you know, the idea that uh, other religions uh, can lead to eternal life or, you know, things like that, acceptance of other religions. Uh, uh, one of the questions was, is homosexuality uh, something that should be discouraged by society? Um, their, uh, their views on that have uh, trended along with all the other views, uh, along with the views of the general public. Uh, as the general public became more accepting of homosexuality, uh, Muslim immigrants and uh, Muslim Americans uh, did the exact same. And many peop- many Muslims come from their countries, they kill people who are homosexual. So that's yeah, a yeah. massive shift in attitude. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. Uh, if, uh, you know, if you take a look at uh, what I did in, in the post was take a look at what the worldwide average is on response to that question in Muslim uh, majority countries, and 90% uh, opposition to, uh, you know, who say that it should be actively discouraged by society, um, that's pretty incredible change. In the United States, 45% uh, say it should be discouraged. So uh, virtually cutting that number in half, uh, and uh, that's pretty, pretty incredible in a short period of time. Well, the other point in here that I thought was fascinating, because it gets to another talking point that we hear all the time, and that's that the Sharia law is going to be put into place in the United States. And I thought yeah. your, your, the statistics on this and the study were absolutely fascinating worldwide compared to U.S. Muslims. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's a, a very important, um, you know, should Sharia or your religion be a, be a source of legislation um, in the United States? In, in Jordan, for example, 93% of Jordanian Muslims say Sharia law should be a source of legislation in the United States. In the, in, among U.S. Muslims, 55% say it should not even be a source among many. It should, it should have no influence on legislation at none. all. So 55% of U.S. Muslims say none. None. No none. influence. And, 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 and when you compare that to other religions, for example, uh, if you ask Christians whether, whether the Bible should have it be a source. A majority of Christians say it should be a source of, uh, you know, uh, inspiration for legislation. Uh, among U.S. Muslims, no, none. Uh, so that's a pretty stark difference uh, between U.S. Muslims and, and Muslims internationally. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating look at this. Now, here's a question from Dave Moxley here. What's the difference between social attitude and changes and westernization? Do you see westernization of uh, Muslim immigrants occurring at the same rate? Or are they linked? So, uh, you know, obviously uh, people define westernization uh, differently. I would include things like democracy, um, freedom, re- religious freedom, um, lack of extremism, uh, those types of things are part of that westernization package. And, yeah, they are linked. Uh, so you, you see the same trends if you ask uh, U.S. Muslims about support for democracy. Uh, they're, they're far and away the most supportive of democracy of any Muslims in the world, uh, including those in Europe, for, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. 
the American situation really cannot be compared to uh, what's happening in Europe. And, and uh, why where, is that? What, what is the what is Europe's problem on this? Is it so simply a lack there, there, of historical are, ability on, on assimilating immigrants? So historical history is extremely important, but there's so many different factors. Our labor market is an extremely important part of the picture of assimilating people into uh, mainstream society. And uh, we assimilate people into our labor markets very quickly compared to Europe, which has uh, very tight controls. They make it very difficult to hire and fire people, which makes it much less likely you're going to take a chance on an immigrant uh, if you know that you can't fire them if it doesn't work out. Uh, it's just one example. Uh, culturally, we have birthright citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know uh, if you're a Muslim in the United States and you have a child here, you know that child's American, just as American as anyone who's been here for, uh, you know, 10 generations. Mm-hmm. And so you, you grow up psychologically as that child knowing, I'm an American. And this is what Americans believe, and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all of those things are part of that package. That's not the way it is in Germany. On that uh, note, David, had, let's take a quick break, our final yeah. break here, and we'll come back and finish this because I want to talk about the article you wrote on this exact issue recently on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, del bufete de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración, llámenos hoy. Conocemos la ley. Sabemos cómo ayudarle. Si hay algo que se puede hacer, nosotros lo podemos hacer. Llámenos a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos por el internet a la www.immigration.net. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. Our featured guest today is David Beer. David, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Uh, You put out a blog on October 6th, and I would tell people, go to Cato.org, put in David Beer, B-I-E-R, and look at his blogs. They are fascinating discussions. And, David, you must have written like 40 of them in the the few months you've been there. You are a busy beaver. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So the title is Why Refugees Find Jobs Faster in the U.S. Than Germany. And I think you just mentioned as we were leaving because of the way the German labor market works. Yeah. So Germany has a myriad uh, a number of uh, restrictions on asylum seekers in particular seeking employment. And so what you end up with is a situation in which it takes a much longer time for them to enter the labor market and to get work authorization 
relative to the United States, where we immediately, as soon as you arrive in the United States as a refugee, you receive uh, work authorization. And so the Syrians who are coming to the United States uh, enter a much different situation where they can compete on equal playing field uh, with any U.S. citizen and, uh, you know, find jobs. And that's exactly what happens here, uh, but doesn't happen in Germany for many years. And so that's a big distinction. About almost 50% of uh, refugees in the United States get a job within the first year of being in the country. In Germany, it's less than 20%. Wow, And so that's a pretty stark difference, and you're going to end up with social problems if you do not have a job. assimilate people if you don't have into a job, the you, labor you, market. If you don't have a job, you've got to fill your time with something. Yeah. Uh, and that's why having a job and economic growth is so important, which is why strong economic growth is so important. Um, you also wrote earlier this summer about why it's so important for the U.S. to hit its refugee goal. Uh, I thought that yeah. was a fascinating take because there's a lot of, I mean, particularly Trump has really come out strongly against, you know, we take anybody, you know, they, they literally just walk in our door and say, I'm a Syrian refugee, let me in, oh, excuse the bomb in my backpack uh, kind of stuff. And we know that's not, anybody who's, who knows immigration knows that's not true. But why why is the reason we're hitting our target important? Well, I think refugee resettlement is an extremely important part of our immigration system. It's often neglected. Uh, but refugees really, ex- accepting refugees is, I think, a very important part of our humanitarian efforts around the world. But more than that, it also has repercussions for foreign policy, for, um, for those types of things uh, internationally. So, uh, you know, one of the factors that I think is really important is that, you know, we're up against the Islamic and, uh, you know, regardless of how you want to see them destroyed, I think everyone in the United States would like to see uh, ISIS disappear from the planet. And really what Syrian refugees represent to ISIS are a group of traitors uh, from their caliphate. And they say so directly. They say that they are apostates to the true Islam for fleeing their, their land. And the reason why they're upset is really important. Um, they are represent the loss of human slaves, essentially, people who are supplying them with resources uh, to continue their fight. So every person who flees Syria is another person who is out of the reach of ISIS, who's taking their money, who's taking their resources away from them. And so that's an extremely important part of the, the puzzle here. If you want to defeat ISIS, you should not treat uh, the enemy of ISIS as, as enemies, as uh, a threat to your country. You should accept them. You should encourage them to flee uh, that part of the world. And uh, that's really what the Refugee Resettlement Program and the other channels for uh, these refugees do. Now, if we don't take them in here, but we tell, hey, Europe, you need to take a million refugees, that also impacts our ability to ask Europe to do other things that are favorable to us, too, doesn't it? Sure, absolutely. If we say it's all on you to figure this out and we pull out, um, then, yeah, they're not going to listen to us on a variety of other issues. Whether that's Russia, whether that's other issues in the Middle East, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in China. I mean, this is all part of a bigger political process, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely, it is. And uh, people downplay that. 
but that's just one of the many reasons why taking refugees is really important. Uh, during the Cold War, accepting refugees was extremely important because we gained foreign policy assets and spies and allies and spokesmen who refute the enemy's propaganda. It's the same thing today. Uh, refugees are a constant refutation uh, of the ISIS propaganda about the West, that we, we hate Muslims, that we persecute Muslims, that uh, that were just uh, this hedonistic environment. Uh, there's a great story uh, that the that came out of Las Vegas, where the Syrian refugee family, Muslims, were resettled in Las Vegas. And when they were overseas, they Googled Las Vegas, and of course, you know, you turn up <laughs> Sin City, right? And yeah. they thought, what are we doing? This is insane. We're going to uh, the the Sin City capital of the USA. This is crazy. And then when they got there, they found out, wow, there, is, there are religious people in Las Vegas. There are, uh, there's a community here. We weren't threatened. People are friendly. This is, uh, this is really home. And, uh, you know, they totally changed their view from what it was after they came to the United States. And that's what we're seeing among the Syrian Muslim immigrants uh, and refugees across the entire United States. Now, you, one of your other articles also talked about the fact that there's three times as many women and children as men that come into the United States from Syria, too. Isn't that correct? Yeah, so the, you know, we've heard um, Donald Trump talk about how, the, you know, they're all young men and they're all, uh, you know, here to be soldiers, uh, Trojan horse yeah. uh, type of situation. And it's not true. I mean, we're talking about families, and it's disproportionately young people. Fifty percent are uh, children um, of these immigrants, and you know the the men who are in that uh, you know twenty to thirty five range, they're fathers of young children, yeah. and so we're not talking about just detached men who uh, you know don't have a family life. This is you know we're bringing over families, young children. Uh, many women who are, you know, subject to persecution or fleeing violence in that part of the world. And uh, that's an extremely important part of our, our uh, efforts in that region. Well, David, I want to switch gears a little bit to go away from refugees and undocumented immigration and really talk again about legal immigration in these last few minutes that we have. Because you wrote an article on August 2nd talking about the government has cheated legal immigrants for decades. This is something that a really good friend of mine, who I think you know, Cyrus Mehta, yeah. has, has written yeah. about, and I agree with, is, you know, let's say Congress said today, hey, we're going to legalize everybody, they're all going to get work cards, but they have to work their way through the legal system. Well, the legal system itself, for employment, for example, only has 140,000 green cards a year, but it's yeah. not really 140,000 green cards a year for 140,000 workers, is it? Yeah, so so that's exactly right. So you have this 140,000 limit uh, for workers, and there's a huge backlog. And I actually have an article that I wrote uh, describing how no one even knows, no one even in the government knows how long these legal immigrants will have to wait. It's likely going to be a century wait uh, for certain immigrants. Well, for, for India, India, for, for India, example. for sure, definitely a century, maybe longer. Yeah, and it's it's it is just incredible and. The reality is we created a system in 1990 that, uh, you know, created 140,000 visas, and they were supposed to be used 
uh, for workers, for employees who get sponsored in the United States to come over and work. And what ended up happening was we ended up giving more than 50% of those visas actually went to the family members, the spouses and children of the workers instead of just 140,000 workers and then, you know, the spouses and children get visas um, outside of the limit or outside of that cap. And why did that happen? Why did that happen? Well, the Bush administration decided to take a This is Bush, is Bush 1. Let's be careful. This is, this is George H.W. Yeah. Bush in H. W. Bush, right. In, in 1990 or 1991, uh, the Bush administration decided that spouses and children should count against the cap. And the Bush administration, just to give some, some background that uh, I don't think was actually in the post, but, uh, you know, it turns out the Bush administration had long been against uh, not counting spouses and children against this cap. They thought it was uh, basically treating them as U.S. citizens, and that was a, a very negative thing. Um, you know, it was demeaning or, you know, uh, degrading the value of citizenship somehow. And so he had this principled opposition, or the administration had this principled opposition to it. And so in 1991, when they uh, decided to interpret the new law, they uh, decided to count spouses and children against the cap, and that's what we've been doing for the last 25 years. And we cut the number of legal immigrants by half as a result of that, and uh, we ended up with huge backlogs and, and many problems. And so the point of that article was to say the president can, um, under current law, fix the problem by um, not counting those spouses and children of uh, legal immigrants. Well, David, this, this, this is a, that's a discussion uh, that needs to continue, but our time is now up. I really appreciate you coming on our show today. I'm sure it will outpoll uh, Alex's show on our list of shows because it's just a really wonderful conversation. You have a remarkable future ahead of yourself, young man, and I am glad that you're on our side talking about the facts on immigration. David, thanks for your contributions here today. Thanks, Reed. Thanks for uh, this is the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. I look forward to here talking to you next week here on the Immigration Hour. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.